Well, good morning, church. Thank you all for joining us online today. I want to start with a little story. I heard a couple about a couple who were getting ready to have a baby, and they went to this doctor who had just invented this machine that could transfer the pain of the mother to the father. He asked the couple, would you like to try it? Uh, no one's ever tried it, but would you like to try it? And they thought, well, we might as well give it a try. So anyway, he looked at the husband and he said, I tell you what, I'm going to set it at 10% because you probably never felt pain like this ever in your life. So he set it at 10% and amazingly, the husband's doing great. No pain at all. And after a while, he's feeling so good. He says, Doc, let's take it up a notch. How about 20% pain transfer? So the doctor, he's a little reluctant, but says, okay. He puts it on 20% pain transfer and the husband gets along great. Still no pain. And after a little while, maybe the husband's getting a little cocky, but he's saying, hey, how about 50%, doc? So the doctor said, okay, and he raised it to 50% pain transfer, but he checks the guy's heart rate, checks his vital signs, his blood pressure. The guy's doing great, fantastic, no pain. After a while, the husband looks at his wife, and she's definitely benefiting from this. She has very little pain while she's going through her labor, and he says, you know what, doc? I'm getting along with this so well. I feel so good. How about 100% pain transfer? So the doctor said, okay. He transferred 100% of the pain transfer over to the husband. Uh, still no problem. No problem. He's feeling great. The wife goes ahead, delivers a beautiful little baby boy with very little pain. The husband and wife are ecstatic. But when they got home, they found the mailman dead on the front porch. Just saying, that's funny. I don't care who you are. Think about it. And it ties into my message, actually. We're continuing on with our sermon series called Letters to the Church. I brought a mailman into the picture. Anyway, today we're continuing on with our sermon series where uh, Jesus tells John to send seven letters to the church that's recorded in the book of Revelation. Um, it's amazing how one letter can change your life. You ever think about that? How about a college student that, that has applied for college opening, nervously opening up that letter, wondering if it's a letter of acceptance from the college or a letter of rejection. Or maybe it's a letter that a jury gives a judge to declare whether a person's guilty or not guilty. Well, that's what was happening when we look at these churches in the book of Revelation. Jesus asked John the disciple to dictate these letters and send them to the churches on Jesus' behalf because he has a message for each one of the churches. He has things he wants to uh, say good about the churches. He has some things he, that aren't so good to say to the churches. Um, and it's amazing how relevant those letters were written thousands of years ago, how relevant they are to the church of today and what they say. Today we're going to be starting, we're going to be looking at the church of Thyatira. Thyatira, I would call uh, a church or a city that was a plain Jane city. I mean, we've looked at the other, some of the other churches so far, but this uh, city of uh, Thyatira didn't have fancy libraries, fancy universities. It didn't have theaters and hospitals like the other cities. And no famous person came from Thyatira. It was basically a blue-collar town when it came down to it. They were a working man's town with many trade guilds or unions uh, to make cloth, dyeing cloth, and even making pottery. And if you remember the Apostle Paul and what was said in Acts chapter 16, his first convert was actually a lady by the name of Lydia, and it says she was from Thyatira. 
She was also described as a woman who uh, dealt in purple cloth, which for some reason was one of the most expensive cloths in that day. But back in that day, it was very uh, difficult for a blue-collar tradesman, and especially for women, to make a living unless they belonged to one of these uh, uh, trade guilds or one of these uh, trade unions. And the unions back then were a whole lot different than they are today because they were linked in with the worship of all of their false gods. If you belonged to one of those trade unions, uh, you were actually expected to attend all their functions, to get involved with all of their activities, which included offerings, feasts, and sometimes immoral behavior. So think about the members of the church in Thyatira. They were torn. They were stuck in the middle. They were torn between making a living on one hand. That meant they had to be part of those trade guilds. And on the other hand, staying faithful to Christ. Staying faithful to Christ and His standards, His principles. So when it comes down to it, they were kind of caught in the middle. So this church was also the smallest of the seven churches. And yet, get this, Jesus spends the most amount of time on this letter to this church. Even though they're the smallest, he writes the longest letter. Look what it says in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Notice that he uses, for the first and only time in the book of Revelation, this term, the Son of God. There are people out there that claim that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Well, they'd be wrong. This is just one of the many times in the New Testament where Jesus makes that claim very clearly. But this means, of course, that he's just bringing out, stressing his uh, deity. And think about him, what he's just said. As the Son of God, he has eyes like blazing fire. Think about that. Eyes that can pierce right through the facades, the disguises, the pretenses of his people. And get right to the heart of what's really going on in their lives. There may be someone here today. Maybe you've got some sin in your life. Maybe it's hidden sin in your life. You can cover it up from your pastor all day long. You can cover it up from your family. You can cover it up from your husband or your wife. You can cover it up from your church. But there's one you can't cover anything up from. And that's God. He sees it all. Because right there it says he has burning eyes. Eyes that can burn straight through to the depths of a man's soul, to the depths of a man's heart and what's going on in that heart. Look at verse 23. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. Think about that. Jesus not only knows us from the outside in, he knows you and me from the inside out. He knows every detail about our lives because he knows everything. It says he has feet like burnished bronze. That just symbolizes judgment. Jesus not only knows his church, he judges his church. And he's about to judge this church in Thyatira. You know, that tells me that his feet can trample sin and uh, can punish whatever's wrong, whatever needs to be punished, made right. And both actually are needed in this church of Thyatira because it's actually the most corrupt of all the seven churches listed. And it's kind of strange of all the churches that these letters were sent to in the book of Revelation. No church got more praise than this church in Thyatira. Kind of crazy, but look what it says in verse 19. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Think about that church. 
I'm sure we would all like to be on the receiving end of that compliment, right? I'd like to be that kind of a church. In other words, he's building this church up. He's building them up saying, hey, great job, guys. Good job, church. High five, fist bump. I'm proud of you. You're doing an awesome job. And unlike the believers in Ephesus that we've already looked at, who were uh, those that lost their love, this church of Thyatira was actually being commended for their love. I believe this church family really understood what really mattered to God when it came down to it. They loved God. Not only loved God, but they loved one another. And they were building relationships with each other. They were carrying each other's burdens. And experiencing fellowship with God, and not only God, but with each other on a level that I think many, most of us never experience. And their love was continuing to grow, it says. So when it comes down to that, I want our church to be just like Thyatira. Amen? I want our church to be full of that kind of love, that kind of determination and dedication. I want to be able to say that we're doing more now than we did five years ago. Amen? I want to be able to say that. And I hope that we'll be able to say that what we're doing in five years is a whole lot more than we're doing today. But when it comes to witnessing, witnessing, praying, giving, serving, teaching, working the whole nine yards, we ought to have one word that comes to our mind. And that ought to be more. The word more. God, I want to do more. God, help us to do more. So here was a church. They had people that loved God. They had people that uh, loved his people and served his people. And to an outside observer, without a doubt, Thyatira would have been a church that, man, it looked good on the outside. What a great church. And I would imagine if we'd attended one of their Sunday morning services, we'd have been sold on that church. So Jesus is saying, hey, this church, yeah, it's to be commended because of their love, their faithfulness, and their service. Sounds good. Sounds like a great church. But the blazing eyes and the burning feet are about to step into action. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Say tolerate with me. Tolerate. You tolerate. And this is where the trouble begins. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. That's a big deal to God. A bad deal to God. Think about America. The land we live in, it's cool to be tolerant. It's part of our culture. We hear all the time, you just need to be a little bit more tolerant. Well, Jesus is stepping in and he's telling the church, hey, wait a minute, church. There are some things that you're not to be tolerant of in the church. And just to be clear, though, just because he tells us not to tolerate whatever doesn't mean we have a right to be mean about it, doesn't mean we have a right to be hateful, amen? Because a lot of people take that wrong. They say, well, if Jesus says we can't tolerate it, uh, we, can, we have the right to be mean. We have a right to be angry, hateful, whatever. No, we don't. Because you have to look at the Scripture. John chapter 13. Jesus says, they will know you are my followers by one thing, by your love. Not your hate, but by your love. But there are some things in the church, Jesus said, that are not supposed to be tolerated. Let me go back to verse 20 again. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So there were people literally in the church committing sexual immorality. Right there in the church. They were church people. 
They were tolerating this Jezebel to also teach in their church. And by the way, Jezebel was not her real name. I believe it was just a term used to describe her character. And I say that based off, off of what we studied on, in the, uh, about Elijah the prophet. If you remember Elijah the prophet, when he was a prophet for God during that time, wicked King Ahab was on the throne over Israel. Well, he marries this woman even more wicked than him. Her name is Jezebel. She was ruthless. If you remember, she had the prophets of God put to death. She had people that wouldn't bow down to her false gods put to death, persecuted. She practiced witchcraft and idolatry, and her whole goal was to corrupt the people away from following after the one true God. So the name Jezebel is just an adjective used to actually describe, I think, a wicked, evil, godless type of person. Uh, reminds me of a story I heard about a husband and wife who were going on a little vacation. Um, they stopped at a gas station, and this was long ago before you pumped your own gas. The gas station attendant came running out, and he said, fill her up. And the guy said, sure, go ahead and fill her up. And the attendant asked, uh, while he's uh, pumping the gas, he's uh, having a little conversation with him. He said, hey, this is a nice car. What kind of car is it? The guy looked at him and said, well, it's a Chrysler. Well, the guy's wife sitting next to him in the car, she's hard of hearing, and she said, what did he say? The husband said, well, he asked me what kind of car this was, and I told him it's a Chrysler. Then the attendant asked, hey, are you going very far? And he goes, no, we're just going to Nashville. And then the attendant asked, well, where are you from? Uh, the husband said, well, we're from Atlanta. And the wife asked, what did he say? And the husband looks at her and says, well, he asked us where we're from, and I said, we're from Atlanta. The attendant then says, hey, you know, I used to know a woman from there. She was the meanest, hardest, bitterest, coldest woman that I've ever known in my whole life. The wife asks, what did he say? Husband looks at his wife and he says, he says he thinks he knows your mother. Anyway, this church, with all of its accolades, had some problems because it was actually tolerating this woman and her teachings. And what she was teaching was that immorality was not a big deal in the church. No big deal. Little immorality here, little immorality there. It's okay. Not a big deal for believers. And did you catch the part where the Scripture said that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet? Think about that. God didn't call her to be a prophet. She called herself to be a prophet. She comes in one day, I can just imagine her hanging her degree on the wall and says, hey, you all have to listen to me. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, the Word of God says this in Romans 8 or in Genesis chapter 5 or Revelations chapter 20. But think about it. It's a whole other thing to claim that a dream or a vision or a message that you have comes from God. Whole other thing. What she was proclaiming as coming from God was actually contrary to God in His Word. And the thing about false prophets, they'll always end up teaching their own philosophies, their own opinions, rather than the Bible. So anytime you and I let go of the Word of God and the truth of God, we're headed in the wrong direction. We're headed for problems. And I believe one reason God gave us His Word is because He knew we as human beings would go astray. We would fall away from His Word and His will. So He knew we needed the Word of truth. We don't need any more opinions. There's plenty of those out there. We need the Word of truth. How many know there are a lot of voices out there trying to pull us away from God, steer us away from God, pull us in the wrong direction? Well, Scripture, in Scripture, God warns 
us of those who would teach things that are not what God's Word says. Look what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Think about how angry Jesus is with this Jezebel. As angry as Jesus was with this Jezebel, his complaint was actually more with the people that were tolerating this Jezebel, his church that were tolerating this Jezebel. Think about it. All it took was this one person, Jezebel, coming to this church that had it going on. They had the faith, the love, the service, the perseverance. And she came in and she derailed it with her false teaching. You know that old saying, one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. True in that case. The next verse is pretty amazing because it shows the grace, the mercy, and the heart of Jesus. Verse 21, look what it says. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. He's giving her time, she's unwilling. Repentance means to change your mind and your direction. Amen? Away from going your own way and turn and go God's way. So he's saying about this uh, Jezebel, hey, I, I wanted her to stop. I didn't want her to live her life like that. So I've given her time to repent, but she still refused. Look at verse 22, the consequences. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. He says, I will strike her children dead. Some pretty powerful, destructive words. I believe this is describing a spiritual death of those who would really embrace her teachings. And don't miss this because it's so true. There's always a painful consequence or maybe painful consequences to sin. Yeah, sin may be good, feel good for a while, but it's going to hurt for a long, long time. Amen? So if you're still trying to rationalize your way into more compromise, listen to what he goes on to say. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. He's again saying there are consequences for our deeds, consequences for our sins. Sexual immorality always starts in the heart and in the mind. There might be some here that you've thought about a certain sin. Maybe you haven't acted on it physically, but it's already in here. That's a problem. If it's already in your heart and if it's already in your mind. Jesus even goes as far as to say sometimes that's even uh, uh, committing the sin itself. Dangerous ground. A bad place to be in your heart and in your mind. Look what he says in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, Jesus is just saying, hey, no matter how corrupt the church gets, I'm always going to have a faithful remnant of people, and he's telling them to hold on because they're there. Hold on, persevere, don't give up. And he says, you're going to be victorious. He goes on and says, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Look at verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one will rule them with the iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give you 
give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That morning star he's talking about, he's talking about Jesus Christ. The Bible describes him as the bright morning star. Think about it in the natural. That morning star appears right before daybreak, right before the dawn, when the night is coldest, when the night's darkest. You know what that's telling me is when the world looks at its darkest moment, bleakest moment, Jesus is going to burst onto the scene and he's going to shed his light of truth over all the darkness. He's going to dispel that darkness. So let me ask you this this morning. If the morning star Jesus would happen to rise, by that I mean happen to come back for his people, before we even get home uh, to our, uh, from church or before uh, you uh, even think about it, are you ready? Are things right? What I mean is, would things be right in your life? Would things be right in your business dealings? Would your tax papers be filed right? Would your money that you owe people be paid? Would things be right in your marriage? Would things be right with your family, your friends, your children? You know, if you judge the way you've been living for the past several months, several weeks, even several days, would you be happy? If the Lord Jesus came back, would you be ready? That's the big question. Would you be ready to meet Him? Or are you going to be found compromising? Compromising is the first step downward for any Christian. And the sad thing about compromise is compromise always leads us astray and leads us away from God. I heard a story about a certain man who wanted to sell his house in Haiti for $2,000. Another man wanted to buy this house, but was so poor he couldn't afford the full price. So after some bartering, uh, they agreed on a, a price. The uh, owner of the house decided to sell the house for half price with one stipulation. He said, I'll sell it for half price as long as you let me hang on to one nail. That'll be, a, that'll be mine. One nail that's driven over the front door of this house. The guy buying the house thought, well, what would one nail hurt? They made the deal. Years later, the original owner came back, wanted to buy the house back from the guy that bought it from him. He refused. So this owner, he went out, and he found the carcass of a dead dog, a dead rotting dog, brought it back, and hung it on that nail over the front door of that home. Before long, the house was unlivable. And the family was forced to sell the house back to the original owner. The moral of this parable, the moral of the story is really, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, one small peg, he's going to return. He's going to come back and he's going to hang his rotten garbage on it, make you get unfit for Christ to dwell in, unfit for Christ to live in. Think about this church in Thyatira. They were teetering on going the right way or going the wrong way. They were teetering whether to follow and serve Jezebel or to serve Christ. History shows us that this church didn't heed Christ's warning at all because this church fell away from God. They went out of existence at the end of the second century. They were no longer a church. Look what Elijah says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. 
But the people said nothing. Think about that. The people had no response. What does that say about a people? When they're given the choice to follow the one true God or follow these false gods, and they remain silent, what's that say? To me, it says they haven't made up their mind. To me, it says they are compromising. It said the same thing about Thyatira. They were a church that tolerated sin, hanging around in their church. It ended, it ended up being their downfall. Think about that. You know, when I think about sins, they're like having weeds in our garden. Unless you're willing to go out and pull those weeds out of the garden, before long those weeds are going to take over the whole garden. Think about that. We're not willing to pull those sins out of our lives. They're going to take over our entire life. But if we're willing, Jesus makes you and I a promise that He's going to reward us. He's going to reward those that overcome. And believe me today, people, Jesus wants you to be an overcomer. Jesus wants you to overcome. The truth is, even choices that seem so small can have a big consequence when you're out there compromising what the Lord's Word says with what the world says. But the Lord equips us, people. He equips us. He's given us a conscience to guide us. He's given us His Holy Spirit to sound an alarm when we step over into some dangerous territory. But for, in order for us to hear that warning, we've got to be tuned in. We've got to be tuned into His Spirit. We've got to be tuned into His Word. Relying on our own understanding is going to be a problem. Take us in the wrong direction. But those who trust in the Lord and those who apply His principles, we're going to be able to find a straight path through no matter what dangerous territory we're going, no matter what dangerous situation we're in the middle of. So let me say this. Maybe you're caught up in some kind of sin situation in your life. Maybe there's a Jezebel out there in your own life. Someone who's trying to influence you. To cause you to go astray and into sin away from God. Today's your day to change all that. Today's your day to walk in a new direction. To repent. Stop going your old way and go His new way. Maybe you've been out there slipping in your love. Your faith and your service for God. And maybe you just need to rededicate yourself to God this morning. The truth is, He loves you the way you are. But the greater truth is, He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Amen? I believe God has some big changes. God has some God-sized, God-kind of changes for those that would invite those changes into their life. Won't you invite Him? And won't you invite those changes into your life this morning? In Jesus' name, amen? Could you bow your hearts in prayer? Lord Jesus, we do thank you for these letters that we've been studying in this series. I ask that with these eyes, your eyes, that blaze like fire, that, Lord, you would look closely at each one of our hearts and open our eyes, God. Show us what you see. Show us the areas in our life where we're compromising, rationalizing sin and sinful behavior. I pray you'd convict us of any attitude or action that pulls us away from you and pulls us away from your will. And Father God, make us bold enough that we don't tolerate anyone like Jezebel who will bring death and destruction to us spiritually. 
Help us always to be a church that hates sin. Oh yeah, we still love the sinner, but we hate sin. Even if it means having some uncomfortable conversations with people to try to keep them on the right road. Father, I guess what I'm saying is help us to be the church and the people you've called us to be. In the mighty name of your Son, the bright and morning star, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.